Hello, web performance enthusiasts. Welcome to episode two of the Planet Performance podcast. This is an interview with Patrick Meenan. Pat is amazing. He's probably most known for web page tests, but he has also worked on Chrome. Uh, he knows browsers, networks, CDNs, protocols, the list goes on. He has done so much to make the web faster, and at the same time, he's also one of the nicest people I've met. It was a thrill to sit down and catch up with him during his visit to the Facebook office in Menlo Park, California. He had just recently joined Facebook to work on WebSpeed, which is also the team I am part of, so naturally, I'm beyond excited about this. So we talked about web page test and its origins, we talked about HTTP2 prioritizations and about a whole lot more. Enjoy! Hello, Patrick. Hey, Stoyan. How's it going? Good, good. How are you? Oh, doing good. It's nice to actually chat with you again. It's been a while. Yeah, I feel like I've known you since forever, although we probably met just a couple of times at yeah. conferences, but yeah. Thanks very much for all your contributions to the performance calendar over the years. And thank you for running it every year. It's got to take an incredible effort. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm very disorganized, but still, thanks to contributions from people like you, it's still working. Yeah, and you were always the first, uh, most of the time, and always when, when I need something more, then you always offer to help and write some more. How do you find the energy? How do you, how do you find topics? You know so much. Honestly, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> it'll usually end up being something I've been working on in the last month or two or something that popped up, and I'll try and crank out a couple of paragraphs. If I don't do it quickly and right away, it's one of those things that I'll just never get back to. Uh, so that's probably one of the reasons I'm early on or one of the first ones is if, if I don't get it out of the way, I'll forget about it, and especially around Christmas time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it's really hard to uh, solicit contributions. And it's amazing. I mean, it's been, what, eight, ten years that you've been running the calendar? Yeah, it's been ten years now. And, what, 25, 30-plus articles without duplicating every every month for that many years? That's yeah. It's hard to believe there are that many topics on web performance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome to Facebook. Oh, thanks. It's, it's exciting. Lots of performance opportunity, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I have no idea how excited I am for you joining, and we're so lucky to have you. And uh, welcome to the podcast, to the Planet Performance podcast, where we talk about performance <laughs> and the people behind the, the, the performance. Yeah, so web page test, it's, it sort of grew from, oh God, this is way back in the day where there weren't really good dev tools. So we had all of our web developers for the most part, and calling them web developers is a bit of a stretch. Uh, they were mostly Java developers writing apps that happened to spit out HTML, but they were doing all of their debugging in uh, Firefox because Firebug was really the only dev tool available at the time for them to work with. And our data center was right across the street from our dev offices with probably 100 megabit would be my guess connections at the time. And so the developers are on these really fast connections right next to the servers using a browser that none of our users used because we were at, at the time AOL mostly dial up all using 
i.e. maybe six if we were lucky, embedded inside of the client. And so the experience that the developers had looked nothing like the, the experience the users were having. And so it started out as a plugin for IE, really, that let you get waterfalls that looked a lot like what you could get from Firebug. So in theory, you could do local development and get some dev tooling from it. But then what we ended up seeing was none of the developers would actually use it. Uh, and we, at the time, I think it was Steve or uh, someone at Yahoo was talking about how you guys were using a proxy that people could go through to slow down their connections. And we're like, that sounds like a great idea. We'll set up a, a traffic shaping proxy so people can proxy through our, our server and get a slower experience and see what it's like. But no one did that either. And, and what we ended up seeing was anytime we required them to do manual steps in their dev environment, no one would do it. And so we ended up turning it into a hosted tool that would basically run the browser plugin behind the scenes, load the test, and give you the results back. And so you didn't have to do anything with configuring your proxies or installing a plugin or figuring out how to use it. And it just sort of grew from there. So it wasn't my day job necessarily. It also wasn't entirely a hobby project. It was something we needed for what we were doing at the time. You had the, the machines uh, in your basement. <laughs> so the AOL machines, I didn't. Those, we actually had racks of systems that were running okay. in what we called the, the war dialer lab, because mm -hmm. it literally dialed all of the AOL phone numbers as well. But the public version in 2008, when I managed to get AOL to let me open source it, I stood up a version that was running on my home internet connection, okay. and the server was at my house, and the only test machine at the time was also at my house. And it's funny, if you go back in the Wayback Machine far enough into 2008 and look for webpagetest.org, you'll see it was a redirect to pagetest.patrickmeenan.com colon some random port because it was on my personal internet connection, which had no port 80 serving or anything else. And I think the original server was also on DreamHost because they had unlimited storage at the time, uh -huh. which is why I learned PHP. It's sort of the first time I ever wrote anything PHP. So I could store all the test results on their server and not have to worry about storage until it started using too much space and they kicked me off. So unlimited wasn't so unlimited, mm. but uh, the days. Yeah. And then uh, when did other people started joining in and, and hosting instances? Yeah. So... It wasn't too much later than that, and I can't remember the name of the company, but it was a, a web accelerator company out of New Zealand. And the founder for it was like, hey, this is an awesome tool, but we really need an, an instance running in New Zealand or uh, where our customers are. Can we sponsor or can we set up a node for you? And that was the first one, and we just sort of grew from there. And also in the Wayback Machine, if you look, you can see the, the UI. Oh, God, it was horrendous. But the original version had a radio box where you could check, I want to test from Dulles or I want to test from New Zealand. And then more of the accelerator companies hopped on and wanted to host co-locations, and it just sort of grew from there. And it ended up being a really good tool for them, selling their services, because you could do the what it looked like with and without their their accelerator software. And so it worked really well as a sales tool for them as well. And it was nice to have a waterfall for IE because we were using, what was it back then? IBM Page Detailer. Uh, so yeah, it was invaluable. 
And it seems to be the, the standard now for people doing presentations or writing articles. Yeah, I mean, I get a, a little bit of flack for, for the UI and the fact that the waterfalls are images and they're not interactive and all of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's been, it was sort of a conscious decision at the time, and it's been hard to move away from because it's so easy to just copy and paste the waterfall directly out of the results into a presentation. Mm-hmm. You don't have to screenshot, you don't have to select a region, you don't have to annotate anything, you just copy and paste it and you can go on from there. And so it's been a feature of it and making it easy to get stuff into presentations. Eventually maybe I'll see if there's a way to do like a, a canvas-based waterfall you can interact with, but still provide a way to copy an image out. I think there are some, some tools that you can give them a HAR file and then we'll do the, all the drawing of the waterfall. Yeah, so uh, like the HTTP archive uses one, it's HAR viewer, which looks a lot like the uh, Firebug waterfalls basically because Hansa wrote it. Yep. Um, I kind of like the style of the waterfalls in WebPageTest, and they've sort of evolved over time beyond what those viewers could do. In theory, I guess I could contribute back to the viewers, but it's one of those things where it's a whole lot of code for drawing the pixels. Uh-huh. I think I noticed kind of a bug. <laughs> it's not really a bug. You know how the settings are sticky when I change something and then open a new tab, except for the capture video? Some of the settings are sticky. And when it decides to stick the settings Like sometimes it remembers the setting when you run a test, but the location and browser remembers when you do a dropdown, when you actually change the selection. And it's one of those things where if you like navigate back, when it loads the page, it will auto repopulate a few of the settings through JavaScript. So yeah, all of my code for doing the UI and the settings management is a nightmare. So I apologize. No, 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 (laughs) not at all. I was just wondering because I usually don't need to capture video if it's putting any more load on your machines. So honestly, even if you don't capture video, at least the desktop agents still capture video. So it can give you the speed index and start render and things like that. And it just throws it away instead of storing it. Oh, I see, I see. And honestly, if you capture video, you're gonna be a rounding error in the amount of storage that web page test uses in general. So don't don't hesitate, go <laughs> ahead and capture video. Um, most of the, by opening up the API and letting people use the API, I'd say most of the storage use goes to people running automated tests. Mm -hmm. And those I age out every 30 days or so, I'll delete uh, old tests. Mm -hmm. So running manual tests, it's not going to. Oh, I see. Feel free, capture video, (laughs) look at the film strips. It's nice to have them if you need them. Uh I think what a lot of people don't realize is that you can actually have private instances, right? It's not just a nice website that you can see what's going on. Yes, I strongly encourage it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so I offer no SLAs, right? Uh, There's no way to pay for more testing capacity with an API key. That way, I don't have to wake up and deal with issues if there's anything wrong. I don't have to offer any guarantees. So if you want to do a whole lot of testing or you want to be in control of the testing environment, absolutely stand up a private instance. It's all open source. There's AMIs available for EC2 for the server and the agents in all of the regions. So you can do a global testing network fairly easily. Uh, Google Cloud as well, Google Compute Engine. Um, There are images for the server and client. So it's fairly easy to get stood up and run your own instance. 
Uh, if you're going to be testing staging servers, I don't know how, how many people do that anymore now that everything's in the cloud. But if you have a staging, a test network where stuff's not publicly available and you want to run agents behind the firewall, you have no choice but to run a private instance as well. And there's, I remember there was a, a book called Using Page. Using uh, Web Page Test, yeah. Using so Web Page Test. Luckily, I didn't have to write it. <laughs> um, but it, it talks about private instances. Yeah, so it's got, I'd say, probably a full third of the book is around setting up private instances and walking you through doing it. That's very nice. And there are, I mean, the one thing I'm a little sad I never did was there's no tracking beacon or anything that the private instances ever send back. So I have no idea how many private instances are out there. I know there's a fair number of it just based on the, the questions I get from people about their private instances or if something breaks. And it does, I mean, it's all as liberally licensed as possible. I think it's mostly under a BSD license. So there's a few commercial services that also use uh, the web page test agents under the covers to do their testing as well. So uh, after the success of web page test, you went to Google. Did they hire you because of web page test? I remember you had some more people helping you. Yeah, so they hired me to work on make the web faster. Um, and a good chunk of that was web page test, but generally to see what we could do to make the, the entire web ecosystem faster. And for a, a few years, I did have a couple of engineers working with me on it, uh, which was nice. They, they helped add the Chrome support, iOS. iOS support in particular, uh, there was one of the engineers that was working with me that did all of the translation layer between DevTools messaging and iOS that's still used by a whole lot of tooling today. So there were some really cool things that came out of it. But yeah, I mean, it was really nice to have some extra hands. Didn't last, but... <laughs> Uh, so you were, your goal was to make the web faster. So how do you think we're doing in, <laughs> in terms of making the web faster these days? Google has done a lot in terms of evangelism, both the carrot and the stick, right? And yeah. I talking mean, about SEO and page speed. I think we're doing a good job at treading water, right? <laughs> it's like the browsers get faster, the frameworks get better, but devices get richer. So we've got retina devices all over the place. So you need four times as big images for the most part for those. And mobile, you would think, oh, great, smaller form factor. But you've got most of the mobile forms, forms have screen resolutions that are higher than most desktops were uh, back in the time or even today. So you've got like high resolution video, high resolution images, uh, much richer apps, much more JavaScript. So I'd say we've improved performance, but all of the improvements have been sucked up by richer experiences. Don't know that that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. uh, we've enabled the richer experiences, and at least you know things haven't regressed drastically. Okay. But I don't know overall that the experience has gotten any faster. Do you think it's mostly the bigger images, or more JavaScript, or combination, or everything, or fonts? Uh... More everything. <laughs> more of everything. <laughs> yeah, much more fonts. I mean, fonts have exploded and. They're kind of a painful experience. It's getting better. Certainly JavaScript images, I mean, there's a lot more bytes, but the experience of loading images isn't, it doesn't really get a whole lot slower by loading the images because they can progressively render. Things that aren't in the viewport can load later. It's really the JavaScript 
and the move to more SPA, React, that kind of stuff, based applications that that definitely adds a lot more both network-bound issues as well as CPU. I mean, it used to be the case that CPU was never a problem. It was always, it's all about the network and mostly about the latency. And now with mobile devices having slower CPUs than most of the desktops we were working on back in the days, and networks getting faster and so much more JavaScript, CPU is becoming a fairly heavy constraint as well. And so now you have to sort of wear all of the hats and look at, okay, profiling the JavaScript, optimizing the network delivery, and everything else. And it's, I mean, on the good news side of things, we're going to be employed forever at this pace. <laughs> but <laughs> it's a little frustrating not to see a little more uh, gains in the performance side of things. Yeah. And if you look at the statistics, how much more JavaScript we ship over the years, uh, it's kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> after Google, you went to Cloudflare, and one of the, the things that you mentioned to me back then was uh, that you want to help with the long tail. Yeah, so I mean, there were a couple of things on the, so when I was at Google, I was mostly working on the client side of things in Chrome, and there's only so much you can do when you're on the receiving end of all of those bytes to make things faster, right? You can You can make the JavaScript run faster, you can schedule the ordering of the resources that you're downloading to try and make it better, but you can't actually change what's being shoved down the pipe to the browser, right? And so part of my move to Cloudflare was to see what can I do on the server side of things to deliver a better experience to the browser, knowing what I know about how browsers load. So what we tend to see is we used to see a lot of, like Google had huge dev teams dedicated to optimizing search and all of their apps. And Facebook has huge dedicated teams to optimizing for performance. But all of the WordPress sites out there, all of the e-commerce sites out there that are sort of the longer tail of sites don't have big dev teams. Heck, most of them don't even have engineering at all. They, they paid for a site at one point, and that's all, of the, all they know. And so I wanted to see what could I do to help at least bring some of the best practices to those long tail sites where they weren't uh, doing even sort of the basics of the, the minifications and image optimization and resource scheduling and things like that. And so that was a, an exciting opportunity as well. Yeah, provided that people want to use or know enough about a third party that can can do all this good stuff for them. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the good things. Cloudflare has at least fairly good penetration into the long tail. I think it was somewhere around 10% of the sites in the Chrome user experience report are on Cloudflare. Okay. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's not like all of the web, but it's, you know, 10% of the web is a fairly huge chunk, especially when you get into the deep tail. And if you start going for more of the, the hosting providers and working with like the GoDaddies of the world and things like that, you can try and get more of the long tail on, even if it's just to sort of the free offering, and you can do some of the optimizations for them automatically. Uh, so now if you buy hosting from DreamHost or uh, GoDaddy, there's a... So I'm not sure which hosting providers. A, a good number of the hosting providers have deals where you get Cloudflare CDN for free as part of it, okay. and they make it easy to do. Mm -hmm. Granted, Cloudflare is free for anyone who wants to use it. It's the 
ease of setting it up, like I said, most of most of these long tail sites don't have engineering teams. Um, most of them have no idea how to repoint their DNS, for example, right? And so it's the process of onboarding even a no cost feature. So the 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 deals with the the hosting providers or the the software as a service tends to be the easiest way to get a lot of sites on and make them faster in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think one of the last things that you did at Cloudflare, I, I saw a post recently from you about HTTP2 yeah, prioritization. So, <laughs> <laughs> wow, uh, that was an adventure. Um, yeah, so I mean, when I got to Cloudflare, the first thing I wanted to do was find some low-hanging fruit in the optimization world. And uh, one of the big ones was Google Fonts. It's actually kind of painful. When you load Google Fonts, you load... CSS from one Google domain that blocks all of your rendering. And since it's from a separate domain, it's like three, four round trips to even fetch the CSS. And then it fetches the font file from another domain. And so to get your text on the page, it's like eight round trips minimum. And sort of, you know, old latency world used to talking about round trips. Mm-hmm. And it was like on 35% of the sites on the Chrome user experience report use Google Fonts. And so it's like, okay, really painful experience, impacts start render, and it's a huge percentage of the population that's using it. And so one of the first things I did was build something that basically inlined, it would, from the Cloudflare edge, it would go fetch the the current CSS from Google, inline it where the external reference was, so it gets rid of all of the round trips that block render, and it would proxy the font file through the origin domain as well when it got requested. Um, So we ended up in a situation where you could get the font file in one round trip instead of eight. And then launched it, tested it, and it made things slower. (laughs) It was like, oh, that's not good. And it ended up, I mean, it was a a few months worth of investigation to figure out why, but HTTP2 prioritization was effectively not working, even though there's code for HTTP2 prioritization. It turns out Deployment in the wild requires a lot more than just code. It requires, for HTTP2 in particular, requires a lot of work on the the TCP stack and congestion control just to make sure it can react to priority changes. And so we got all of that tuned and was like, okay, Cloudflare is in good shape for HTTP2 now. Um, The the font optimization actually works and it shows good performance gains. And I pinged a couple of people just to give them a heads up. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's been a known problem with HTTP2. No one else has that problem. And I was like, okay, good. So Cloudflare's fixed. I can move on now. And then uh, probably a few weeks, maybe a month or so later, I ended up bumping into, I think Zach Leatherman had put a post out where he, and so he does a lot of font work. And he was sharding his fonts to a different domain to make them faster because he was getting really slow performance when he was serving the fonts from the same domain, which was completely counterintuitive, but happened to be exactly the same problem I had. And I was like, huh, you know what? Why don't you go take a look at this and and see if you're actually having a prioritization problem and that's why you're having to shard it. And it turned out he was, and then, so the hosting provider he was using also had HTTP2 issues, at which point I was like, oh, Maybe it's not just Cloudflare that was having issues. Maybe it's a broader problem. And so I worked with Andy Davies. We built a test that sort of leverages some of Chrome's prioritization behavior to expose when a a web server is or is not supporting HTTP2 prioritization correctly. 
and we tested a bunch of, we basically tested every CDN we could find, as well as all of the cloud providers. Uh, well, I wouldn't say all, but the big ones, Google, Amazon, Microsoft. And so it's up on isHttp2fastyet.com, and we're sort of tracking which ones are properly prioritizing HTTP2 and which ones aren't. And it's honestly a little scary. There's maybe a third to a half of the CDNs are properly prioritizing HTTP2. And this is their main job, right? Mm -hmm. uh, serving web content over HTTP2. And only a third to a half of them are getting it right. None of the cloud providers' load balances are doing it. Every personal site, or so every self-hosted site where uh, someone's like stood up HAProxy or Nginx that I've tested uh, is also completely broken. So effectively, HTTP2 is pretty much broken on the web as it is today. So what what is the problem? What's broken? Um, priorities don't work. Okay. And so the servers will largely send back resources in whatever order they got them from their back ends. So the browser will request a bunch of resources and it will assign each one basic, it builds a priority tree effectively, which is what HTTP2 supports. Now the browser support is a whole different nightmare hell where all four main browsers do something completely different. Some are more effective than others, um, but assuming you deliver things in the order the browser asks, you should get reasonably good performance. But what ends up happening is the servers, most HTTP2 implementations have an edge that does the HTTP2 work that then talks to a whole bunch of backends, whether it be a cache, an app server, whatever, and it multiplexes all of those requests over the one HTTP2 answer. And so whatever responses it gets from the backend systems in whatever order they happen to come back in is what the HTTP2 server ends up delivering to the browser, independent of whatever prioritization the browser asked for. And it's because of buffering, basically. Between the network and the TCP stack on the server, the buffers are so big that the HTTP2 implementation doesn't have time to actually do any prioritization, because as far as it's concerned, when it gets bytes in from its backends, there's no pressure on the connection. It, it's available to send it. So whatever it has, it sends immediately. And it just builds in in the buffers. And so you end up with resources coming in completely out of order, or you'll end up getting resources roughly in the order the browser asked for them. But if the browser then asks for a high priority resource like a font, so fonts are particularly sensitive because they get discovered late. They're not discovered until CSS is applied and styles are rendered. And then the browser goes, oh, crap, <laughs> I need this font to draw the text that I'm trying to draw now. Please send it to me at the absolute highest priority because I need it now. And so at that point, the server has already filled the buffers with every other resource on the page. So you have like five megabytes of images in the pipe and everything else. And then it goes, oh, and here's the font you wanted, by the way. Yes, it's the highest priority thing I have to schedule currently because everything's already in the buffers going down to the browser. And so you end up with the font coming in after every image and everything else on the page. And so it's one of those things where HTTP2 on paper is awesome. In deployment, it actually takes a lot of work to get right, and we're not at a point right now where it's right 
in more cases than it's not. And you have an upcoming talk on and velocity in a couple of weeks? Uh, well, so next week on next Tuesday. Week, yeah. Well, next week of as of the recording. <laughs> By the time you're listening to this, it may have already happened. Yeah, so um, hopefully it will be available, uh, made available by O'Reilly, so people can check it out. Yeah, so it's basically going to be three hours talking about the in-depth details of all of this and how the browsers work, how the scheduling works, why it's broken, how to fix it, trying to fix the web at large. Uh, yeah, that'll be a treasure, three hours of presentation about in-depth about HTTP. Yeah, and I mean, I definitely need all of your help, all of your users' help, listeners' help, um, because I don't have a lot of pull with the cloud providers. I don't pay any of them money, right, or the CDNs. And so test your deployment. If it's not working and you're paying someone money for serving your content, make them fix it or vote with your dollars. <laughs> And then after HTTP 2, there's HTTP 3. What, what is that about? What's your involvement uh, helping um, with the specs? or Not directly. So because of all of the HTTP 2 issues and prioritization. So one of the other things we did at Cloudflare while I was there was we took the prioritization sort of a step further. And like I said, the browsers all do something completely differently. And so we decided to expose a server API for the, the prioritization so web developers could be in complete control of the prioritization independent of what the browsers asked for. And so to support that, we actually had to come up with a different prioritization scheme that was easier to rationalize than sort of the entire dependency tree that HTTP2 supports. Because to do the dependency tree, you need to know about every other request that's in flight at the time and chain them together. And so what we ended up building was it looks a lot like Chrome's prioritization system effectively, where you have multiple priority levels, and then you say, does this thing download concurrently with other things? So you can serialize things, and for images, you can download them concurrently, but you can define it statically. And so... We enabled you to program that on the Cloudflare edge, and part of my work with the HTTP3 group is in trying to find out, is there a better way to do prioritization uh, between the clients and, the, brow and the, the servers that doesn't require this tree? Can we do something simpler that's much more likely to get implemented optimally, I guess you would say, with clients and with servers? HTTP3 brings a lot of other interesting aspects with it. It moves the TCP layer effectively into application mode. And so it's all done over UDP, and then the congestion control, the buffering, and all of that kind of stuff is done in Quick or HTTP3 itself. And so it theoretically has all of the same problems as HTTP2, but it doesn't require as much careful server tuning as long as your browser and server implementations have reasonable buffering algorithms within them. And so at least it's much more in the application control. That also does put a lot more responsibility on the application, right? And, and now your web server is basically also your, your networking stack. And so you have to trust that their implementation of effectively TCP, congestion control, retransmits, and all of that kind of stuff is good because it's all done in application mode. The other thing 
HTTP3 isn't going to be replacing HTTP2 in deployments. It's all over UDP, and so there's going to be tons of failure modes where it's just not available, and the browser's going to have to talk HTTP2 to your servers. Probably not the least of which is going to be active blocking. So if you're in an enterprise, for example, odds are they're going to block UDP port 443, which is what it's going to run over, because they need their uh, man-in-the-middle proxies to be able to log all of your traffic to make sure you're not leaking secrets or doing things illegally or whatever else. So in all the corporate environments, you're going to have largely no quick. Um, in the countries where they need to be doing DNS filtering or uh, traffic filtering and things like that, odds are you're also going to see them blocking uh, the encrypted SNI and sort of all of the things that go into HTTP3 for privacy, but they also get in the way of filtering illegal content. And so you'll probably end up seeing entire countries blocking support for HTTP3. And so when HTTP3 works, it tends to be, in the normal cases, about the same speed as HTTP2. But where it really benefits is in the tail. You have like packet loss on the connections or slower connections, HTTP3 tends to do a lot better. And so for when it's working and when it's available, it'll be really good. Uh, but it, you really have to think of it as like a progressive enhancement. It's definitely not always going to be there. Uh, you're always going to have to be able to fall back to HTTP2. And probably a large amount of your traffic is always going to be HTTP2 or even HTTP1 uh, for the cases where the man in the middle doesn't support HTTP2 at all. Yeah, that's a really nice way to putting it is a progressive <laughs> enhancement over HTTP2. You know so much about how browsers work and CDNs and protocols and everything and JavaScript. How did you get into, how did you get interested in performance or in, I guess in computers in general? Wow. I mean, so computers, I was lucky. I was growing up sort of in the golden age of getting exciting things going on with computers. Apple IIe was sort of my first one. Got a, a modem probably... 9,600, if I was lucky, it was probably 4,800, 2,400 baud, something like that, bulletin boards. Mm -hmm. So I started getting really excited about the, the, the networking and the, the communications technologies and stuff like that. And it just sort of grew from there. Honestly, when I went to school, I didn't realize at the time that you could get paid to do computer programming. Mm -hmm. And so I went in and I actually tried to go down an engineering path for aerospace engineering. Uh, and then when that didn't work out, I realized, oh, wait a minute, there's actually degrees for computer science and you can get paid. And I loved computer programming. So for me, it was just kind of a natural fit. So you started writing BASIC? Yeah, so BASIC was definitely my first first language. Uh, Peaks and Pokes, Beagle Brothers newsletters for anyone who goes back that far. And so you kind of self-taught, you taught yourself uh, Visual BASIC and then in school? So in school, it was largely, so I went, uh, it wasn't Visual BASIC, it was BASIC BASIC. Yes, exactly, <laughs> yes, BASIC, yeah. Um, and then I think I probably went to Pascal next with Turbo Pascal, um, Borland, yay. Um, and then from that, C, and this was all still uh, terminal, no GUIs or anything like that. Uh, and then when I got out of college, my first job was probably Visual Basic and Visual C, one. 
So you have to teach yourself so, again. <laughs> well, there wasn't a lot of teaching myself there because luckily Visual Basic, I mean, the language wasn't that much different. The GUI, I had to learn the GUI, but I was an intern. And so there were people there that could help uh, sort of bring me up to speed on it. And then it was always sort of my first job was doing digital film scanning. So this was when we still had 35 millimeter film and digital cameras didn't exist yet. And so we built systems that for photo processing systems that would scan your, your film and give you floppy disks or CDs with all of your photos on it. And so part of our job or what I got into and what I was responsible for was making it scan as quickly as possible and still have decent quality. And so the optimization really just sort of started there, make it go as fast as it can. Okay. And then so I went from there to AOL and it was like, we're on dial up and we need to make it connect as fast as it can and we need to surf web pages as fast as it can. And for me, I've always enjoyed making things go faster. Uh, optimization, I'll optimize all day long. <laughs> Yeah, well, we're, we as an industry and, and the users are certainly very lucky to have you, you know, Honestly, really yeah. grateful and thankful for your contributions. I'm just excited people are willing to pay me to do what I enjoy doing. So shh, don't tell anyone, but I'd probably still be doing the same stuff even if I wasn't getting paid. Oh, great. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Patrick. Thank you very much for your time. Well, thanks for having me. It was great talking to you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks.